Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research. He directs Stanford Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging, and his research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. Dr. Bhattacharya's recent research focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19, as well as an evaluation of policy responses to the epidemic. His broader research interests encompass the implications of population aging for future population health and medical spending in developed countries, the measurement of physician performance tied to physician payment by insurers, and the role of biomedical innovation in health. He has published 160 articles in top peer-reviewed scientific journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, statistics, law, and public health, among other fields. He holds an MD and PhD in economics, both earned at Stanford University. This is Jay's second time on Savage Minds. His first appearance came in 2020 to discuss his participation as a co-creator of the Great Barrington Declaration together with Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kuldorf. He returns to Savage Minds, and I welcome Jay Bhattacharya to the show. You and Martin were breaths of fresh air and sanity to me because, as I mentioned to you, I had just moved to ground zero of lockdown cray-cray here, and it was devastating psychologically for everyone here, uh, including myself and my family. We were, it was really hard. In fact, even when we spoke, I was in the throes of like, you try to get on with your work and your work in a way saves you. But it wasn't until things started to unlock here that other pieces started falling apart because you, you sort of realize when you've been released from prison, how far into the prison you were. The mental health devastation was so severe. You, you talk to people, not just here in Italy or in France or whatever, but there are people who are completely agoraphobic now. There are people who are afraid of hugging their friends, their children. It's insane. And we knew this. It was either you or Martin that said one of the dangers of lockdown is that it's going to be really hard to undo. Yeah. And so true this is. And I kicked off Savage Minds in the height of a pandemic. Who would think, you know, one would launch a magazine and podcast under such conditions, but I was forced to because every left of center publication for which I wrote refused absolutely and categorically to run anything, anything on this. I couldn't run anything with yours or Martin's name in it. I got hate mail sometimes from, oh, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I was so disappointed in large parts of the left. Uh, I, I mean, I thought for sure the left would speak up because the harm to the, the harm is, you're absolutely right about the harms, but they weren't equally distributed. It's really, it's it's the poor and the working class that have been devastated by these by these, uh, by these these policies. Um, and, but on the other hand, there are, there were like, you know, like Sunetra comes from the left and the Swedish government was, was <laughs> that's a left-wing government that that adopted this very, you know, much more reasonable policy. Um, uh, so it's it's a really weird kind of uh, kind of time where like the the normal ideological labels just don't seem to make much sense. We were just abused by them, you know, just just uh, you know attacked mercilessly. Yeah, I interviewed a former 
politician in Australia. I've been dealing with a lot of interviews with Australians lately that will be coming out shortly. And he said, one of the strangest things about this is that I found myself at protests with people who months before were protesting against my cause. <laughs> and there I was standing <laughs> shoulder to shoulder with them. And how true this is, uh, all valences of left and right, they were already going out the window with identity politics, but now with COVID, they're gone. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because I had to recognize my own wokeness in certain issues in my youth, especially. And one thing that I respect so much about people on the right for speaking out is that you're defending our rights on the left to disagree with you, you see. The funny thing, you know, I, I, I have to say, I had never held my politics too closely before the pandemic. I just, I honestly didn't care that much about politics. Like I, I, I realized, I mean, I would write papers and sometimes it would be, be picked up by the left and sometimes be picked up by the right. I mean, I was just doing data analyses and science as far as I was concerned. And it would, you know, it would make me happy that 15 people would read my paper. I, I didn't care who picked it up, honestly, who picked it up. Um, uh, and uh, I don't, like, I look back on those, like, you know, because I have a PhD in economics, right? And so you do a PhD in economics in, um, you know, in a top, uh, in a top, like a, 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 like a top Western university, and you're going to, you're going to get this, like, you know, some bent toward markets, but it was just a bent. It wasn't a, wasn't like a firm, firm commitment to like a whole set of ideological pre, pre conditions. I just never really thought too much about it or really cared too much about it, it just seemed like a, a nuisance to me more than something I really uh, deeply cared about but during the pandemic what I found is that um, my politics are I don't know how to characterize them anymore I wouldn't call them right I wouldn't call them left I don't know where it fits or belongs what I do know is that the set of people that have that I've found um, that have spoken up I shared values with much more deeply than any political party I've ever run across I mean, and I don't know where they were to be. Some of them were on the left before, some of them were on the right before it. It just doesn't matter. Um, like there's some like deep commitment to civilization functioning to the, 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 the needs of the poor, the vulnerable, you know, the working class. I think all of that um, and, and, and like to basically just justice um, that I share with people um, that on the anti-lockdown side. And it's just, the, the, the sad part is to me is to see some of my, colleagues I, who I used to admire, they don't share those values. I have no words sometimes. I get so upset when I think about what the left has done because I saw Jacobin. It's very strange the way they handled lockdown. They said all the right words about being sympathetic about the working class in a couple articles, but most all their articles were really directed at locking down in the end. And this was really strange to not see any expression of concern for not just the poor and working class, but as I, as I joke about, but I'm not really joking, how in the heck were people, uh, parents, meaning largely mothers, supposed to work from home and homeschool kids and have time to eat and sleep? See, no one thought about this. Everyone was just I kept saying to people early on, I kept saying, how are we supposed to do all this? Because even before lockdown, I could barely have enough time to eat even one meal a day. I was really busy. I work a lot. A lot of people work a lot and they love their jobs. But it's another thing when you are flung the responsibility of state education 
that's been abandoned onto you. It's been given this nice name, distance learning or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) They've taken in consideration zero studies that were coming out even the year before lockdown, which showed that one article is entitled something to the effect of educators love technology, but evidence shows there is very little improvement in learning by students with this. And so all of this is taken for granted that all students need is a tablet. All students need is some kind of robot learning. Well, (laughs) that wasn't even discussed. So the surrogate to teachers were overworked parents, again, largely mothers, because in this country, that's what happened. Uh, Men were gifted Pornhub, by the way. So Canada gave Italy the gift to men of Pornhub, (laughs) women, were asked to break Einsteinian time-space continuum, you know, there we were, how to fit 50 hours into 24. And I slept very little. I ate very little during lockdown. And the thing is, I had to go to Fox News to hear about working class issues. And I had someone the other day on my wall scoffing me for saying something about Fox. And I said, you are talking about something that you have not watched. See, It's great to criticize Fox if you've actually sat in front of it and watched it. I invite you to watch it. Then across my feed came another article by Fox being very critical of another working class issue. And I put it up on my wall and I tagged that person. People on the left love to make fun of their go-to figures to hate. And Tucker Carlson was one of them. Jon Stewart made fun of his tie. That had a lot of traction for many months, but people change and I'd say the left has changed away from class. And I'd say Tucker Carlson has taken more consideration towards class and gotten rid of some of his gimmicky presentation, some of his over-the-top hyperbole. We're all um, crooked timber in some sense, right? Like, I, like right. I've been on I've been, I've most, I've been on some mainstream and, and, and like left-wing uh, TV. and uh, But for the most part, I've been invited to be on Fox. And on Fox, I have spoken for the poor. I've spoken for the working class. I've spoken for, I've, I've, I've recommended the vaccines for the elderly. A lot of people have written to me. I mean, I've got a lot of hate mail from from former friends of mine, but I also got a lot of very kind notes from just regular people. Mm-hmm. And they're telling me the same stories you're telling me, Julian, like, you know, like moms that, that single moms that can't, like, they're like, what do I do? Uh, for, for my kids, you know, I have a, a seven-year-old, I have to go work, and do I leave him home alone on Zoom? Right. You know, I, I just, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, and I, it's, you're right, it's like, it's, it's weird places that you wouldn't necessarily have expected for the pandemic that ended up speaking for people like that, um, and I don't, I just, you know, I'll go where that is. I don't care what the label is, I, and they're all really, fun. they're, you know, they're, they all have their quirks, but frankly, so do sort of the mainstream places have their quirks and not, they're not quirks that are easy to overlook either. Well, not at all. CNN was running one infomercial after another. They had travel stories at the height of lockdown. These were paid stories. And what a lot of people don't realize is that these publications, including Forbes, a lot of these publications are running paid advertisement. I've written about this because I find it infuriating and it should not be allowed. At least it should be declassified as journalism because these outlets are running paid advertisement, but it's tailored to look like an article. And they have programs for it. I linked to it in my article. Forbes has a program that you can pay six digits 
if you are a medium-sized company to get coverage by them. So it's all fake news and no one's discussing this. So yeah, when I was seeing CNN and Forbes running story after story about cruises and going to Puerto Vallarta and so forth, it stunk. But you know, I took away from our talk so much because I was in panic mode seeing everything around me crumble. And it was really hard because I, that was when I wished I still was in academia because I'm a freelance writer everything crumbled and I was really panicked. And I thought, oh God, like, what do we do? We've just moved to this new country and it's had the most draconian response to lockdown. And this government has failed over and over. And now there are failings. We're seeing failings just as you and Martin told me on the show two years ago. The other day I interviewed a filmmaker and a libertarian political commentator, Topher Field from Australia. And he told me that the previous eight weeks in Australia, there were 798 deaths by COVID or with COVID. Of those 798, and keep in mind, 5% of the Australian population is not vaccinated, two were unvaccinated. Now, given those statistics, roughly 40 would be amongst the dead who were unvaccinated. This was just one thing he threw it at me during the interview I had no idea about. Then yesterday's news from Germany. I don't know if you've followed that. We spoke briefly via email about the excess deaths, the excess deaths in the UK currently approximately at 1,300 a week. I have tried to get this information from the ISS in Italy. I was stonewalled by them yesterday. I was very angry because they have the capacity to calculate the deaths and know the numbers of who was vaccinated. And I'm not saying they can do that for last week's tallies, but certainly for two months ago's tallies, but they do not. Then when I tried to get the information on the phone, I was told, well, it doesn't matter. This is what the guy told me. It doesn't matter because as you know, most of the deaths are amongst the elderly. Well, that's what Topher Field calls moving the goalposts because if the whole idea of these vaccines was to protect the elderly, which many scientists maintain it should have been, whatever, then what was the purpose in the first place of forcing vaccinations upon all of us in this country? I am supposed to have a vaccine. I was sent a registered letter, threatened with a fine, and nothing has been said since. That was about two and a half months ago. I mean, I think, uh, so the, the, the hard part about this, the conversation about the vaccine is that uh, it, it, it takes place weirdly in an information vacuum, right? So the main source of valid information we have about the vaccines are these randomized trials that were run in 2020. Uh, with uh, Now, the, the, that was run on obviously a very different uh, variant than the, the one that's currently circulating. So we don't have a randomized trial for how this vaccine works with this variant. Um, the the way the the result of that of that trial was uh, was that it was a was a clinical endpoint of prevention of symptomatic infection. Now, if you think about that, that sounds really good. So, like ninety five percent protection against symptomatic infection at, at three months. I mean, that's a true result. I think. Um, I mean, you can you can nibble at the edges of it, but like that's let, let's just say that that's true. That that there's symptomatic infection uh, prevention against symptomatic infection. I think I think it's true. Um, that actually is not epidemiologically the most meaningful thing. 
because or from a policy view like what you want if you're going to make policy around this you want to know does it prevent severe disease or death or alternatively you want to know does it prevent people from getting any infection at all and transmitting the disease on mm -hmm. like those are two very different epidemiological endpoints that lead to two very different policies like let's say we had a vaccine that stopped disease transmission altogether right then you could use it for herd immunity you could use it to get rid of the, the virus altogether you just need to get a sufficient number of people vaccinated and we're done we didn't know that the, the, that the vaccine did that in december of 2020 uh, and in fact the vaccine doesn't do that we found that out very quickly after the vaccine was deployed where we saw countries like israel get enormous case outbreaks even after they vaccinate a very large fraction of their adult population i mean there's no way that it could stop transmission. You couldn't, you couldn't maintain it at stop. I, I myself, I got the vaccine in April of 2021. And in August of 2021, I got COVID. That's a lot of people have had that, had that same experience. Um, so the vaccine then doesn't stop transmission. There's no good argument for vaccine-based discrimination. Right? And I heard in Italy, you couldn't go to a job. You could, you lose your, you lost your job. That's the same thing as the United States. People lose their jobs over, over not wanting the vaccines. Uh, and they ignored in the United States, they ignored the fact that if you had COVID and recovered, you actually had pretty good protection against getting sick again, uh, or certainly getting really, really sick again. So they destroyed, they like essentially introduced discrimination, legalized discrimination against the unvaxxed on the basis of a scientific falsehood, the idea that the vaccine can stop transmission. We knew this, as you said, early on, so that we were told, do you remember at the beginning, Biden, you won't get COVID if you take the vaccine? Yeah. And so that has been one goalpost after another shifting because we've known that the vaccine does not keep the subject from transmitting. Now, does it keep the rate of death less? This is a question for the subject. And then the severity of illness, because we were told it did. But then if I'm looking at the statistics from Australia, that's not what I see here. So, so I think, I think, that, so it's complicated to look at the population statistics and infer something about the protection against severe disease. As I said, the vaccine trials didn't show anything uh, because it didn't have that as an endpoint. There have been some like the, the way you do this it, when you don't have the randomized evidence is, is always going to be subject to like some criticism. I mean, there's just no perfect way around to do this. Uh, the best studies I've seen have come from places like, weirdly, like Qatar uh, from, um, uh, there's one I think was in De uh, was it Denmark, Denmark, Sweden, there's a Swedish study. Um, there, what you do is you, you, you get a group of people that have been vaccinated, you find a matched group of people who are similar but aren't vaccinated and you track them comprehensively over time to see if they if they die from COVID. And there you actually do see some evidence, at least during the, the Delta waves and, and earlier, earlier variants of the vaccine protecting against severe disease and death. And I believe it. I mean, I think, I think it's true. I, on that basis of those studies, I have advocated that older people be vaccinated because that's who is really at high risk from dying if they get COVID. The hard part with the population studies is that you have a vaccine, but you don't really know the risks, risk categories that people fall in. So for instance, if we had vaccinated only old people and not really vaccinated very many young people, the rate of death would have been higher among the, vac the vaccinated because even vaccinated old people are at higher risk of dying than unvaccinated. While at the same time, you still have a reduction in the risk of dying from COVID if you're vaccinated. 
especially if you're old, mm -hmm. if you follow me. So it's the statistics yeah. of it are complicated to, to, to get inferences out of. Uh, I mean, my best read on this, you know, I've, I've been doing this a while, uh, is uh, and it's still going to be controversial, but my best read on this is that the vaccines, the right way to use them uh, is to is to recommend very strongly that older people get vaccinated to reduce the risk of severe disease and death. For younger people, there really isn't a, an enormous benefit from getting vaccinated. Uh, I mean, there may be some small benefit, but already their risk is low from of a bad outcome if they get COVID. So you're protecting against a relatively small risk. And on the other side of that equation is, especially for young men, these mRNA vaccines seem to produce, you know, I think really high rates of myocarditis, you know, heart inflammation and other side effects that would cut against uh, the whatever benefit. So just just on a, I mean, like if you do medicine, it's always like this. Like you always compare for any medicine, you compare the the side effects versus the the benefits, and just and it's it's almost it's always an individual thing. Like it, for some some patients or some people, you might have the side effects are worse than the benefits. And so you say, don't, don't take it. And for others, that same drug, the benefits are better than the side effects. Um, you're always balancing those two. It needs to be an individual thing. And then, and then you take the drug if, it's, if the benefits are more than the side effects. I think that's the way I've approached this. Um, it shouldn't have never been a dogmatic thing. It should always have been clear and honest communication about what we know and what we don't know. I know a person who lives near me who lost her job. She was a hospital worker. Many hospital workers here did not want to take the vaccine. Many were very skeptical about mRNA technology. Most were skeptical, as was I, about the speed in which this was ushered forth. Because the average time for a vaccine development is much more than this. This vaccine was developed in under a year. The vaccine development that I've read about, depending on which university study you want to cite, but Johns Hopkins, I think you said 10 to 12 years. So one I think is, is okay to be skeptical about it. I'm not a no vaxxer, by the way, all my kids had, I didn't even bat my eyes to give my kids those jabs that they got at birth at two months or whenever they gave them because it was different in the UK and then in Germany. And I had no problem with that. I'm not someone who would ever even push back on that because I'm very aware that polio or diphtheria, uh, I don't think they give polio anymore now in the US, but that's made a comeback apparently. Yeah. With lockdown, as you mentioned to me when we spoke, you said one of the things that's gonna happen is that vaccines will not be taken, they will be skipped in many places and sure enough, but this is where we are, we're in this, we're in this space where if you question a vaccine that's been developed and rolled out in less than a year, you're somehow on the level of those folks in Disneyland that started a epidemic, right? Uh, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, the the, the what, what's happened is um, because of the the force used to push this vaccine on a population for whom it was, if, if at best it was marginally beneficial for young people, um, you, the, the force used is a lot. It's, it's breeded distrust about other vaccines that have tremendous good evidence behind. I also vaccinated my, my kids for, you know, DPT, um, for, uh, for, uh, for measles and for, for polio. Um, uh, that's, it's really vitally important. Like, cause you know, those are diseases that really can harm children that can kill children, uh, at higher, much higher rates than COVID can kill children. Um, and, and so we've seen this up, up, up upsurge in, 
the uh, in parents distrusting those vaccines as a consequence of public health essentially d- destroying its credibility. I mean, it's really it's really sad to see. Like, I, I don't, and I, I want to figure out some way to fix it. I just don't know how to fix it. I think it has to start by telling the truth over and over and over again, and then uh, acknowledging error. I, I don't, and I don't see public health seem to be willing to do that in country after country. Well, in Australia, Topher Phil was telling me they wanted the government to show them the science to justify the lockdown, and in most countries, governments have not done this. They're just saying, trust us. Wait a sec. This flies in the face of what a democracy is about. And I think we need to start to have, just as they had a commission and looking into what happened in 9-11, I think we need to do that for this in every country, every country, because I'm very concerned about this happening again for two reasons. If it's another COVID type light pandemic that's not the plague, I never want to be locked down again like this, ever. I mean, I am against gun ownership, and I think I would consider it, you know? And then I know I sound crazy, but I tell no, you. I mean, the thing is, it's, you know, I think we've never in the, uh, in, at least in my life, I've never experienced what it means to really lose your liberty. Like, what is that actually? Because we basically have, I've lived my life in the in in a, in a in a in a country where I've never faced persecution, I've never faced a, a violation of my basic rights. During the pandemic, we've normalized that. We absolutely have normalized it. We've said, okay, you can't say what you think. You can't uh, you can't move from from one place to another without permission. You can't uh, you you can't uh, uh, make d- decisions about the health status of your family. You can't choose to work or not to work. Uh, you you can't uh, you, you you know you 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 can't even gather with your friends or family for 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 for, uh, for, for celebrations or for funerals. Um, you can't send your kids to school. I, I mean, like very very basic things that uh, are, are I, I I mean I I always I guess I just took them for granted have been utterly overturned and it wasn't like really democratic. It was. It was really at, it was at the whim of public health. It was the whim of people in my class of people who, who uh, you know, have some training in in medicine or epidemiology or virology or whatever, but do not fundamentally appreciate how important those liberties are for for human human flourishing, human well being. When you were speaking just now, I kept thinking, oh, but the wokarati would be saying things. Well, it's only a marriage. It's only a funeral. Get over it. People are dying. You know, that kind of Twitter talk that we saw. And I had a similar trajectory to many people who are sitting in our thinking right now. Because at the beginning, I thought, oh, this must be a serious thing. But as soon as we knew it was, we knew who was targeted. We knew what this was about very early on. I began to think, that something was really wrong politically. And I saw a shoring up of fear by politicians. They used the population, not only that they could scare to death, but they targeted people who would fit into that fear factor. And that's what this was all about from the beginning, Jay. Again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think you know that COVID is made up. I know it exists. When you hit it right on the head, the issue isn't whether uh, COVID is real or not real. Obviously, COVID's real. Uh, it isn't even whether it's deadly or not deadly. It's obviously deadly. Um, the issue is whether who's really vulnerable. 
right? The normal way to deal with a, uh, with any threat, uh, any public health threat, is first identify who's really most at risk, right? Uh, and so, like here, the there's this thousandfold difference in the risk of disease of bad outcomes if you get infected, right? So, like very very uh, old, old people are very high risk of dying, uh, like three, four, five percent risk of dying if they get sick with COVID. Um, that was before the, the the vaccines. That was before uh, basically everyone's been infected and gotten gotten over it. Um, provide that then that provides protection. But like it's really really high risk if you're older, um, and much much lower if you're younger. Vanishingly small if you're if you're if you're if you're a child. Um, and so that with that fact, that's a fact. This is a biological fact, right? So what do you do with that biological fact? You move heaven and earth to protect the people who are vulnerable. How is that? I don't understand how that's. Could possibly be controversial. It's just so obviously the, the the right and moral thing to do. At the same time, you don't harm the people that are young that that, that are not at risk in some bid to somehow magically protect the high risk people by harming the, the low risk people, right? So like we close schools, forced uh, you know, poor kids to tr learn uh, learn un unattended on Zoom classes. You know, do you, do you, I don't know if you, I mean if you heard this, but like in in Uganda country of 50 million people, uh, they, they closed schools for two years and four and a half million Ugandan children are never going to come back to school again. They're gone from the system forever. They will grow up illiterate. They will grow up, uh, they, will, they, will, they will become adults with absolutely uh, substandard education that would not have happened if public health hadn't told the, uh, the Ugandan authorities that the right thing to do was to close the schools. Um, I mean, it is criminal oh, what we've done. Yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, it's like and all in a bid to protect older people when there were other alternate means available to protect them. We did it for nothing. We didn't save lives with the lockdown. In fact, what we did is we devastated the well-being and even the lives of the poor, the vulnerable, the working class worldwide. I mean, there was a I mean, I, don't, I, I still can't get over that this didn't stop the lockdowns. There was a there was a U.N. report in March of 2021 that said that 230,000 children had died as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by lockdown in South Asia. Starvation, really. They, they, died, they died of starvation. Um, and why, why how, like, like, it was utterly predictable, right? You have this globalized market, all these four countries had reorganized their economies around the, fitting into the global economy. And then overnight, you just said, oh, nope, that's 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 done. That ends ended, and then of course people who are at two dollars a day or less of income are going to die as a consequence of it. There's not any room for error there. Yes, you pointed that out on the show when you came on two years ago. You said that there would be starvation, there would be people dying. These reports are everywhere, and yet you won't see any of the left of center media even today. They, this is the worst part, Jay. And this is what I thought last year at some point, I thought, holy cow, when all of this comes out, how badly this was done, how badly it was executed. You have many problems here. First, you have the governments that have to admit they got it wrong. They probably won't. Then you have all the sycophants to these governments, including people who have sent us hate mail, including friends ex-friends who have disowned us because they are the very types, I mean, there must be a phenotype here of individual who can simply not admit when they are wrong. And that's not who I am. I'm very good at admitting when I get things wrong. 
But I have to say, I don't think a lot of people are. And so we are in a psychological trap within a psychological trap because we have all been, I said the other day on Twitter, I said, hello, fellow slowly boiled frogs, because <laughs> we're coming out of this pot. And a lot of us were jumping around saying, oh, the water's hot. But a lot of other people were like, oh, it's just getting warm. I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> and I think that we have been sounding the alarm in, in each of the ways that we do. Because I tell you, the Great Barrington Declaration was sanity. And I saw it early on. Because when we went into lockdown and my upstairs and my downstairs neighbors, all elderly, I lived in a building of completely elderly people, party, party, party every night. And I thought, hmm, how serious can this be if the Italian authorities are saying that we all have to lock down? But clearly, I can't be living next to the only partying elderly people. That's what was happening here. No one followed the rules if they didn't want to. I mean, a lot of people did, but a yeah. lot of people didn't. And so I became very suspicious about this emergency because it clearly wasn't the plague. So the benefits of taking these vaccines and giving that to be an option for all people, let's say, definitely I have an issue about the, the forced giving of, of young men and even women because myocarditis has now in the reports from Germany seems to be much bigger than they were letting on. The numbers are phenomenal. If you go to what one report said on the TV was anywhere between what was 1,000, roughly 1,600 per dose. So one out of 1,600 chance that you would have a severe adverse reaction. This isn't like pimples or a rash, hospitalization. And another report that went more into detail into the findings said that it depends on how you read the numbers. It could be as low as one in 500. And they said, even at one in 5,000, this would have been pulled as a vaccine. So I'm thinking about all of the nonsense we've been fed because we can't forget. Also, let's skip back to when Trump was president. Remember what the Democrats said about Trump's plan to develop a vaccine that they would never take it. Remember that? I remember that. And, but Biden gets into office and it's the safest thing out there. They sold that like a lemon, like a, a bad car. I mean, the thing, so like, uh, there's a lot in there. I mean, so like, let's, I, I think first, I, I don't know if you've noticed, Julian, but like, it's been interesting to see a lot of the lockdown leaders start to lose their jobs one by one. Right. So like it started with Andrew, but, but it's never directly about lockdown. It's always about something else. Uh, uh, so, you know, like you know, Andrew Cuomo, who sent COVID infected patients back to nursing homes, uh, he, he stepped down because he sexually harassed his, his, his employees. Uh, or, or, uh, then you have like Boris Johnson losing his position, not because he locked down, but because he partied during a lockdown. Right. Uh, you, you have you have uh, like I think like in Italy, you've seen I mean, I guess Italian leaders come and go anyways. But like you, this yeah. guy, <laughs> Draghi, uh, I mean, uh, you, you're you're seeing, I think uh, in, in, in Australia, uh, Scott Morrison loses his pianship as, as and, you know, it's never about the lockdowns yet. He was a lockdown or Trump loses Trump locked down. Um, I mean, it's 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 interesting to watch politician after politician lose lose their jobs for some other some other stated reason when I think a lot of it is just sort of this suppressed desire to, to hold people accountable for the, the the damage that they did and I, I think I'm finding hope in that I, I actually think 
there is going to be a political reckoning around the lockdowns. And, and lockdown leaders, left or right, are, are, are going to start to see a lot of pressure again. I mean, Macron wins, but mainly because you have this, you know, uh, you know, Le Pen opposition. I mean, the, uh, you know, France is never going to vote for Le Pen. Um, so it's, it's, and, you know, and Macron, he's like his, his party then faces a no confidence, they, they, they lose on this uh, domestic passports issue with a far left and a far right uh, or left and right coalition against him, right? I mean, there's, there are, there's makings of a, of a, of a, of a, of a political pushback against a lot of the, 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 the leaders that, that, that adopted this nonsense. Um, I think, but I think is a really good thing. Um, on on the yeah, it's 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 uh, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I, I tend to. I'm, I'm not very good at political analysis, I have to say. So, but I, this is this is why I look at this and I like. It just seems like it's not a coincidence that people are coming together saying no. I had Mary Lou Singleton, who is a midwife, on the show, and she pointed out this about Andrew Cuomo because we had a good laugh. Like since when <laughs> the sexual harassment so quickly develop into he's gone. Like yeah. that happened rather quickly. Even though the investigation was earlier in the, I mean, he was gone rather quickly. It was just like, oh, and oh, he's gone. And yes, they also wanted to cover up what he did in the nursing homes. That never got critiqued by left of center media, not in the way they would have done. I mean, all Trump had to do was say China virus. And that was enough to, <laughs> to piss off the likes of this alleged Marxist or socialist Jacobin. Ridiculous. We have lost sight of what is important on the left. And that's what's worrying to me. There's been zero class analysis whatsoever. I had people on the left after I had you and Martin on the show and others talking about the devastation from lockdown. Are you saying that there's another way you want people just to die? And they could not walk and chew gum, as my mother would say. There has to be a way that we can keep two thoughts in our head at the same time, right? Like, very similar to what's happening in Russia. No, don't support the invasion of Ukraine. But yes, there might be a slight problem with NATO. Yeah, maybe we, that, that's been going on for a, de a decade, right? And people don't like when you have two thoughts that are independent, but related, but still independent, and you can hold them and say, this is wrong, but this is also a problem. And that's what happened, I think, in lockdown is this, this was a great opportunity for governments to capitalize on scaring people. They got that going. And then they could control the masses with these. Did you notice how the signaling by mass media, because mass media, I don't think we can say is separate from the government anymore. This is really a moment for everyone to reconsider turning on their TVs to most of these channels, MSNBC, even aside from COVID, it's embarrassing what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop, what happened there, or the fact that the New York Times runs stories that, yes, we got into Iraq second war because of one of their journalists. We've had serious problems with ethics in journalism, but no worse a time for this than the COVID era. I, I found it really funny, Julian, just to watch a bunch of uh, supposed experts in epidemiology and public health posting on COVID continuously for two years on Twitter, all of a sudden become Ukraine Ukraine war experts. <laughs> I, mean, <Yeah. laughs> I just, uh, you know, I don't know. I have no expertise in, in any of that. And I'm not going to pretend I do. I just don't, 
uh, and you know my thoughts about it are just worth basically nothing so i haven't really shared them because uh, i yeah i just it's it's just it's it's it basically what it's done i think is whatever the expertise the expert class thought it had and whatever perception that it thought the regular people had about the expert class that's thrown away entirely and it's and it's been and it's thrown away in this in, it, with this like it is exactly as you say this like propaganda at the center of it um, and that's I've seen that in COVID, like lie after lie about what the science is saying is pushed by, uh, you know, places like the CDC, where uh, they, in order just to manipulate public behavior, as opposed to like tell the public, here's what the science says, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what the uncertainties are, here's our best advice, you know, given what given 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 these facts. I mean, that think how how far that would have gone in terms of building public trust. Think how much better our public health um uh response would have been uh, instead it's we just i mean i just it's it's just heartbreaking to watch i actually do think public health is important i think it can serve the pu public a lot of good do the public a lot of good um and i just i've seen um when when uh, when it's as as it's thrown away its credibility it's made it basically really difficult to accomplish that good this is where a lot of people in australia have spoken to have said to me that public health has failed us. And I think we do need to have a reassessment of the role that these organizations that are not even elected, like they're extra governmental organizations, like the UN, the WHO, who died and left Dr. Fauci in charge, the conflicts of interests of what he's involved with. I don't know if you read the biography on him, but there are huge ethical breaches there, I'm sorry to say. Let's just pretend that this virus had no origin in a lab in Wuhan. Let's just pretend. His involvement at this level was never questioned. And there are many conflicts of interest there. One thing about that is really important um, and it's sort of underappreciated. The major conflict of interest that Tony Fauci had is that he is in charge of funding um, the uh, an enormous number of very, very high profile scientists in uh, in if infectious disease, including including epidemiologists, virologists, some of the most prominent people commenting on COVID policy are funded by Tony Fauci or by Jeremy Farrar in the UK or or, or Bill Gates. Um, so the um, so what you have is funders like Tony Fauci uh, who control the careers; they make or break the careers of of scientists. At the same time, those those people like Fauci are actively involved in setting policy around COVID and other public health priorities. It's really difficult for a scientist to speak up and say, "Well, look, I'm uncomfortable with this policy." When you know they 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 there's in the back of their heads, they're thinking, "Well, what does this do to my career? What does this do to my ability to get future grants? What does this do to to my you know continuing to be in the in crowd?" It's a conflict of interest for a scientific funder to play a role in setting policy the way that Tony Fauci has. Leaving aside all of the finances and all that stuff, uh, that conflict of interest is pretty fundamental. There needs to be a bright line separating the funding of science and participation in health, in, in, in health policy debates uh, and, and, and influence in health policy debates. If you're a scientific funder and you're responsible for the careers of many, many scientists, it's dangerous to allow you to participate in those scientific debates or like certainly to set science policy the way we've seen. 
because it, what it does is it creates a, an environment where scientists are afraid to speak up. Um, and I think that's exactly what we've seen during the pandemic is why, I mean, when, ten, when, the, when the Great Barrington Declaration, tens of thousands of people actually signed it, including very prominent scientists. Um, and I, I, I mean, you know, people actually lost their jobs for signing it, Julian. It was, it was an act of bravery to sign it. Um, lost their, yeah, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. I mean, people wrote to me and I, I, I didn't know what to tell them because I, you know, partly I felt responsible, but you know, like they're, they're, they're just brave people speaking up. And they get and they get punished for it. Uh, it's because of this conflict of interest. It's just like you wouldn't allow a pharmaceutical company to decide whether a drug should be approved by the FDA or not. That's the same. That everyone recognizes the conflict of interest. This is the same way. In fact, it might even be worse. This has been suggested to me by many people on the ground. There were many people who felt like even having the mandates for vaccine, what that created on top of the way social media kicked off people who would speak out. There was this propaganda coming from major media being enforced on social media so that the average Joe or Jane could not see dissenting voices. I'm very surprised you still have your account because I can tell you so many people have lost their Twitter accounts for saying things that are just patently true. There was stuff fact-checked by Facebook and Twitter that got called up and this article might be, it was completely factual. I had a piece from the CBC that I put up today that was from earlier in the year that they flagged because if COVID is in the title, they will automatically get flagged until maybe a human checks it. So these were bots, I presume. <laughs> we have been propagandized so thoroughly, even doctors here have been propagandized such that the few who've spoken out are looked at as fascist, literally called fascist. And why? Because they're saying that targeted protection was the way that this should have run its course. Yeah. That not exposing young men to the vaccine, because young men are the least likely to die from COVID-19, and this latest variant, as the midwife Mary Lou Singleton told me recently, most of the patients she sees with this variant have the sniffles, if anything. So why are we exposing men in their early 20s, late teens to a vaccine that will, I believe, statistically harm them more than would they die of COVID? Because the rate of a 19-year-old dying of COVID is extremely low. But if we're supposed to take at face value what was revealed this week in Germany, then their rates of possibly dying from the vaccine would be arguably higher. Again, I'm speaking without seeing the data. I don't know if I believe that the death rates are higher with the vaccine. I will say the side effect rates for young people, given the benefit, are not worth it. Right? There's a, there was a there was a reanalysis of the randomized trial evidence by. Uh, some people, uh, some very prominent people, including a, a fantastic statistician um, uh, and uh, Peter Doshi, an editor of the British Medical Journal. He, he, uh, jo Joe Fryman, who's a, a it's an incredible, uh, incredible scholar and ER doc. Um, he, they, they reanalyze the, uh, the, the, the data on the randomized trials, looking for uh, severe adverse events. Um, from and they, they, they did a few things that were really clever. They pulled together the data from the. Uh, from the Pfizer and Moderna trials together to get a big sample size. Then um, they 
for every single reported side effect in the trial, they had a uh, they had a panel of, of people, three people, decide whether it was vaccine related or vaccine not related by, by voting. But they voted blind. They didn't know if the person who got the the, the 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 outcome had been in the placebo group or the vaccine group. So it was like it was a really a fair sort of test. And they found a rate of serious adverse events of something on the order of one in eight hundred, uh, which is really, 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 really high for for vaccines. Now, I think even with that, I think it's still worth it for older people to take the vaccine because they're protected against a severe disease risk. But I agree with you for young people. I don't think the balance is worth it for that risk. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. When I said the risk of death, I should precise here. When I read words like myocarditis and pericarditis, obviously one can not die from that immediately, but what long-term studies will be done? It's not good. <laughs> yeah, why would you do It's not good. No, but yeah. if a 19-year-old gets myocarditis and they don't die, I don't have the science or the statistics to know, but their chances of living a healthy, long life would be reduced, I presume. Yeah, I mean, many people with myocarditis recover, but some don't. And some some do have like basically lifelong uh, disabilities as a consequence. It's it, 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 it depends. But the point is like, why would you put anybody at risk of getting that in exchange for basically not very, uh, in exchange for basically nothing, like basically a very, very small reduction in the risk of, of severe disease if you get COVID. Right. You know, one thing I've heard is like people say is like, look, uh, uh, my, you you reduce the risk of myocarditis if you get COVID if you get the vaccine. Um, because uh, you, and the, the logic is, well, you reduce the risk of getting COVID if you get the vaccine, therefore you don't face the risk of myocarditis from COVID. That actually turns out to be not true because the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID. So you get both the risk of the vaccine myocarditis and also the risk of COVID myocarditis um, together. So the right calculus is, this is just what we've been talking about all, all along, Julian, it's, it's um, what are the benefits, what are the harms for you in particular, for you, the person, you know, the young person, what are the benefits, what are the harms for you, an older person? And the, the answer, I think, is going to be very different. Um, younger people, it's the, the case for the, the vaccine, unless you have comorbidities or some other special circumstance, uh, it's going to be probably no. If for older people, uh, again, unless there's some special circumstance, the answer is probably going to be yes. It shouldn't be forced. It should be something where you go to your physician and you talk it over based on your own personal health condition and make a, make an informed choice. That uh, you mentioned informed consent early in the in the in the um, in the, our discussion. That's something that's really vital for medical ethics. I mean, it, it's it's sort of the basis for how why do, uh, patients should trust doctors to begin with. Um, we threw that out. I mean, we basically decided that that this that everyone getting the vaccine was so important that we were not going to respect people's informed consent. In part, threw it out. In part, we handed it over to MSNBC and CNN, etc. <laughs> and this is where I have real ethical issues in the way that journalism's been in bed with these government's decisions the whole time. I saw a tweet of yours yesterday, and you actually sent it to me in the email, but I was going to ask you about this because I have a question mark. A huge new study 
millions of people from the UK measuring the incidence of long COVID symptoms published in Nature found that 5.4% in patients with a history of COVID infection had long COVID, and then 4.4% in comparator patients with no history of COVID. What does this mean? <laughs> okay, so um, uh, there have been a lot of fear mongering around long COVID. Long COVID uh, is this idea that, is that, is that there are lingering symptoms that 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 can be disabling long after you've recovered from the acute phase of COVID. You get your your um, and uh, so when there, uh, I, I think so. First, let me tell you about study, and then I'll talk tell you what I think is going on. Um, so uh, th there's a bunch of studies that have tried to identify the rate at which long COVID occurs, and a lot of them have been methodologically deeply flawed. Like they've gone to activist groups. So the, the you know, zero COVID activist groups and, and, and essentially recruited people uh, asking them if they have a, one of a long list of symptoms. And if they say yes to one of the symptoms, um, then they say that this is a long COVID sufferer. Uh, a lot of the, the work in the scientific literature has been to do something more careful, which is to match them against other people who have not had COVID, track those people for three months or four months and ask them the same set of questions. You know, did you do you still have a cough? Do you still are you still unable to smell? Do you have a loss of libido? Or you have you know whole whole range of symptoms um, that that are that are seen as potentially related to COVID. Um, and it turns out that in most of those studies, the rate of law of long COVID among people who had COVID is just a little bit higher, or just almost exactly the same as the the rate of those symptoms among people who never had COVID. Now, what does that mean? I think the thing is, you need to distinguish between sort of three different phenomena that are going on all at once. So the first is, and this is, I think, pretty uncommon, but can happen. If you go to the, if you get very sick and you end up in the ICU or on a ventilator, it's going to take you a while to get better, right? Even if you get, leave the ICU, even if you weren't on a ventilator, if you leave the ICU, it's going to take some time because you've just been through a very traumatic thing in your life. And it's going to take a while to recover from that. So I think that that's a legitimate post-ICU recovery co uh, from COVID. That's a legitimate thing that happens to people. Then there's a second phenomenon, which is post-viral symptoms that actually can occur with, I mean, it happens with other viruses. Like I don't know if you ever had mono. Famously, you have long mono symptoms. It takes months of, you have months of fatigue after you, after, after you get, it's caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, Sometimes called the kissing disease, right? So, so it's like in you know, teenager gets it. Um, they they they're they're fatigued for months as a consequence. Most people are exposed when they're little, and then when they get exposed a second time to it, they don't. It doesn't cause these long symptoms, but uh, but it can in some people. Uh, flu can cause uh, extra respiratory symptoms. A lot. Like my son, um, when he was younger, had the flu uh, despite being vaccinated against it. He uh, woke up one morning a couple of days after he'd gotten better and he couldn't move his leg. It turned out it was this thing called benign myositis that sometimes happens after the flu. And he was better after a week, but you can imagine I was really scared for a week. I'm in a long COVID group on Facebook. I went in over a year ago. I was very transparent about going in as a journalist. Let me tell you, it's a very strange group in the sense that advice is asked. What do you suggest? I'm tired a lot, but I wanna get some exercise. 
um, what should I do? So the other thing I go on is I want to ask for ideas about change of diet and exercise. I suggested a certain type of diet, eliminating sugars and carbohydrates and doing some yoga. I got screamed at in the group. Now I tell you this, not to complain about being screamed at, but this is not the first time this has happened to me because I find that these kinds of groups that are focused around a disease, they become highly protective about the notion that one can help oneself by changing diet or doing exercise. I, mean, I wasn't saying go out and run a triathlon or I was suggesting something very minor because it seems like in this group, one thing I've noticed is that the discussions are about nothing. I mean, it is a long COVID support group. Okay. But everything is only about suffering. There's no one that comes on saying I'm feeling better, which is what one would think. It's always kvetching. It's just like kvetch from left to right. And there is no sign of the bettering of the subject, which is a bit bizarre because I would expect a little of that. Or maybe it's not cool in these groups because you don't want to show off that you're getting better. I don't know. That actually illustrates the third type of thing that I think is going on. So like the first two were the post-ICU recovery and then legitimate uh, lingering you know, post-viral symptoms. The third thing is, you know, we've just been through a psychological trauma, a tremendous one of these lockdowns. It's had, uh, as you, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, it, it like, you know, it tre- tremendous effects on the psychological well-being of, of, of the population. We're prone to like, uh, to, to, to worry about many, many things. Not, I don't mean to like denigrate it. I mean, some, some of those worries are, I mean, very, are quite legitimate. Um, and that has a physical toll, whether you've had COVID or not. And I think that that, I think, is the third thing that's going on. That's why those those studies with control groups find such, such similar rates of long COVID symptoms um, in, in populations, whether they've had COVID or not. Um, I mean, it's it's something else going on. And I think it's related to the, to the, to the psychological distress, distress caused by public health creating fear and panic in the population. I mean, that's just not, it's not psychologically healthy to be in panic for so long. Yes. And in the COVID, the long COVID group, what I see is people only being able to relate to each other in terms of symptoms. There is no other life. And it reminds me of, now I'm not saying all people who are struck with chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm talking about the hyperpoliticization of chronic fatigue syndrome that goes on such that if you write about it, happened to me, uh, you get death threats, you get letters, you get such <laughs> hatred. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It's a pale above what happens when I write about gender issues. So I'm very interested, just from an anthropological perspective, in how the socialization around a disease has become people's identity. And there's a lot in common from these long COVID support groups and what I see in the CFS support groups. Just saying. I know I'll get hate mail for saying that, but. Well, I, th- I think, I mean, the thing is, is like, I mean, some of those things are, some of those, some of those conditions are like hard to pin down. If you're, if you're in medicine, you just, you're like, it looks like a whole non-specific set of symptoms. Doesn't mean that it's not real. Exactly. It just means that it's, it's hard to pin down with, and the causes are multifactorial. Um, right. they, they, and they often include psychological distress uh, as well as physical distress. Those are all real things. Those are not, shouldn't, shouldn't be dismissed as if they're meaning, I mean, you, you know, but, but at the same time, you have to, you have to acknowledge um, the, the, the facts as we have them, right? To call, to say, okay, well, this is all COVID 
And I mean, I think a lot of times what people do is they'll look for a simple single cause and point to it as a way of essentially saying, oh, look, it's not my fault. I, it, my heart breaks when I see that because the issue is not one of fault or not fault. The issue is one of how do you, um, how do you provide support so that, so that people get better. And when you have a situation where like you're just, you're engaging constructively with this group and you get death threats as a consequence, that's not helping the members of that group who are, who are really suffering. Like you're just, what you're trying to do is give them, you know, advice to the, uh, to the best of your ability. And it's, to me, it sounds like good advice, you know, uh, go, go do this kind of healthy exercise. That's not, that doesn't, doesn't like stress. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, it's not, it's, you're not, you don't need to run a triathlon. You can go do these healthy, do these healthy habits, um, which are good, no matter who you are, I mean, you're giving good advice and you're getting death threats for it. It's crazy. Um, it doesn't help the members of the group to have created a situation where that kind of, of care for people results in, in, uh, in threats. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I have interviewed Simon Wesley from the Royal College of Psychiatry in the UK. He was a specialist in CFS and he stopped. He also had to get his mail scanned in an x-ray machine. He suffered a lot for suggesting and doing research on CBT and GET therapies. And it's a very interesting paradigm where sick people politicize but they push back on the suggestion of therapies that might help them or the suggestion, as you just said, that psychological aspects are part of the somatic. And it's a very strange thing because the West is very distinct from, let's say, the Arab Islamic world in this mind-body distinction or from even India, where there is an acknowledgement that the mind and body function together. In the West, there's this arrogance that they do not. Hence, the motivation behind a lot of these groups that harass doctors. I learned about this when I was working on a subject related. I was dealing with a transgender identity movement in the UK, and I was talking about the kind of death threats I had just received. And at the next table in this cafe where I was working and speaking to this woman, she says, that's interesting because I'm a psychiatrist. And we had a similar problem in a study we did on CFS. And I was like fascinated. And we spoke for hours. But it's interesting, too, because there's a lot of cultures where the way to somatic health incorporates the psychological. And of course, as you just said, we've just come off of lockdown. Even people who think they weren't affected because they think, well, I'm middle class, I own my home, I didn't have to worry about rent. Well, there's other things that maybe they're not seeing because unless you're a New Yorker where everyone has an analyst, it's, it's going to be really hard to discover what really happened to you. Because I think I had to acknowledge last fall a lot of ways in which I'm still reeling from this. My poor son was affected. He, oh my gosh. I mean, at the time he was supposed to be developing socialization skills. He couldn't leave a very mm -hmm. tiny flat. And so I think these governments have a lot to answer to. But let's get to that because you're... You've talked a lot about the non-effectiveness of lockdown. John Hopkins did a meta-analysis of this. What does that analysis say? So, yeah, so there have been a whole bunch of studies that have looked to measure whether lockdown actually, what it did to, in terms of saving lives. Um, and um, 
the, 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 the idea of why a lockdown might work sounds so intuitive, right? If, uh, the, this disease is a, a viral infection, viral infection spread, uh, like respiratory infection spread when people are close together in a, in a closed space. Um, one person has the disease, another person doesn't. Um, if I just keep people apart from each other, I mean, that's the, that's the basic idea of lockdown is, is physical separation of human beings from one from the other. Um, if I do that enough for long enough, um, uh, for far enough away from each other, then the disease will go away, right? Sounds so intuitive. Of course, it has had a benefit. Um, but the reality is that the capacity for people to abide by lockdown varies tremendously by their social class and their economic circumstances. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, maybe 20% of the American population have jobs that could be replaced by work from home. You know, I call them the laptop class. Yes. Uh, that group, lockdown didn't really affect their financial well-being so much. In fact, they actually gained during lockdown, many of them. For much of the rest of the society, though, lockdown didn't mean physical separation. It meant you had to go work to serve the laptop class. Even if you're a 64-year-old and you're an Uber driver, uh, you're going to go do Uber driving uh, in the middle of a pandemic. If you're a chef or you work in agriculture or, or any of the, or, you know, you, you, you repair electrical lines, no matter, I mean, a huge number of working class jobs were, uh, went on as they had to, to keep society going during the, 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 the lockdown. And there was no provision made in the United States uh, and, and many other countries to protect older workers. Like we could have given sabbatical time to older workers during severe waves, right? This is something we call for in the Great Barrington Declaration. We could have given paid time time off if people are sick and working for working class people. We spent trillions, but we didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so and and so like the actual experience of lockdown for most of society is uh, exposure to the virus. And so when people have gone back and tried to analyze in the data what effect lockdown had. Now, these lockdowns are not randomly imposed. So it's hard to like, you're always gonna get arguments whenever you're trying to evaluate the effect of a policy that's not randomly randomly evaluated. But when people try to do as, as careful a job as they can, what they find is that lockdown had little if no, little to zero to very little effect on saving lives. Very little effect on saving lives in terms of preventing vulnerable people from getting COVID and dying from it. How could they ascertain that? I know a lot of our listeners are going to say, how can they know that? Because you have the diehard lockdowners. And I maintain for everyone listening to this who thinks that lockdown was the way to go, I think it's really important that we understand the harms done and what lockdown did not accomplish. How could they ascertain this? I published a study in 2021, very early 2021. I wrote it with Johnny Anides and, and a colleague of mine here at Stanford. The, the basic thing where you would address this, there's, there's two ways that people have tried to address this. One, which I really don't like, is they will create some model, a, a very mechanical model of how society functions. And, they'll, and in, in this model, they'll run, it's like if you ever played the game Sims, it's, it's very similar to that. They just have a simulation of little individuals that they've modeled uh, randomly running into each other, uh, very little attention paid to social structure, to, to, to class, to economic circumstances. Just, it's just a mathematical model with little sims running around. And then they'll impose a lockdown in this little sim world and say, okay, well, look, the disease doesn't spread when you impose a lockdown because all of my little sims never interact with each other. Um, uh, and then they'll compare that to the real world and say, well, look, um, my model said that if we locked down, you know, there would be uh, 
zero deaths from COVID, and there were a million deaths from COVID. Therefore, the lockdown saved would have saved a million lives. Mm -hmm. Right? It's so they use the model to generate a counterfactual. Right. Um, that's one way that people have gone about trying to evaluate lockdown effectiveness. And those those papers always conclude that lockdowns would have saved a crazy number of lives. But they're just not plausible because the model is not plausible. The other approach is to compare real world places in similar time periods, some of which locked down and some of which didn't lock down. Uh, and so the paper I studied looked at, at uh, cases in Sweden and South Korea and not just like the whole country as a whole, but like little regions within the country, mm -hmm. some of which had you know, some more aggressive policies, some of which had less aggressive policies, compared those places which didn't lock down at all, uh, didn't, uh, didn't lock down in the sense of like didn't impose mandatory stay-at-home orders, didn't impose mandatory business closures, versus places that had more stringent policies, including mandatory stay-at-home orders. Mm -hmm. And what you find when you do a, a, as careful a statistical analysis as you can is that there is no difference in the rate of spread of the disease in the places that locked down the places that didn't. The Hopkins meta-analysis basically co correlates together all of those studies. It tries to give more emphasis on the high-quality studies, less emphasis on low-quality studies, more emphasis on studies that are larger in scope than, and less on the smaller in scope. And what it concludes is that there's very little effect of lockdowns, I, th I think, on cases, on the, on the spread of the disease. Now, will leaders listen to this or... Will this be business as usual? Because as you know, a lot of the, what many would call conspiracy theorists, but one must wonder if they weren't the beacons of light in this <laughs> for some. Uh, many people thought this was a pandemic. Many people thought this was about some kind of economic takeover. And, you know, with all the dishonesty afoot around the, the science, follow the science. Well, we've been lied to about the science. So can you blame conspiracy theorists for coming up with reasons for the lies? Yeah, I don't, I, so I don't blame anyone for anything, really. I mean, I, I, I think people, I think mostly people, well, okay, I should, I should, I should temper that. There was a lot of abuse uh, and, and a lot of, a lot of like uh, uh, nuttiness and people should apologize for that. But in, in terms of like, um, regular people looking around trying to figure out why things happen. I don't blame people for, 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 for thinking in that way. But I will say, I don't think it's true, uh, Julian. I don't think it was a conspiracy. It wasn't, wasn't a plan. It, was, no, it wasn't planned. What happened was that the virus hit, people panicked, and then politicians and other actors took advantage of the situation to try to get their preferred policies in place. So when, actually, when we published that paper, I know for a fact that, uh, that there in in many European parliaments, they were discussing that paper, including in Sweden. Um, uh, the, the Hopkins paper, I think, came out in um, January of 2022, uh, and uh, and then there was a revised in 20, June. Um, that led to a tremendous discussion in country after country. I don't think it's an accident that even in places that had zero COVID, they started to open up in 2022. First, Omicron came and it crushed their illusion that they actually could control the spread of the virus. Uh, and then, you know, the, the academic literature is starting to come to this consensus, appears, that the lockdowns didn't really have a tremendous benefit. So you compare that against the costs, the harms that we talked about earlier in this uh, in this podcast versus the, 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 the fact that it, you just it's really hard to find a real benefit from lockdowns um, in terms of controlling the, the disease spread. What's the purpose then? Why did we lock down? 
this is a question that a lot of people have asked. Was this the go-to plan? Like a lot of governments have a plan. If there's a pandemic, this is what we're going to do. This wasn't in the plan, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, I think what happened was panic, right? So I think uh, in January of 2020, people looked at, uh, they, they heard this, these reports of this very serious disease happening in China. And they thought, okay, okay. and then, you know, there are all these like videos of Chinese, uh, like Chinese people dying on the street. Um, there is this story of this heroic young doctor who blows the whistle on the spread of this disease, and he dies from COVID, from treating, treating patients from COVID. Um, and and uh, they look and see that China locks down an enormous city, and the disease goes away. The World Health Organization sent a mission to China to try to assess its response, and they came back saying, look, this was a success. Locking down was a success. We, can, we should export this to the rest of the world. Then you have Italy, especially in Lombardy, this tre tremendously horrible situation where like older people are dying, you, you, the, the hospital systems are overwhelmed. There's uh, even, even uh, people who you know, bury the dead are overwhelmed. Morticians are overwhelmed. And so you have this, and, and like all these pictures are going around the world. And, and the idea is that somehow um, Italy didn't really handle it well because they didn't lock down early like China did. China locked down and handled early. The, 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 that combination of panic along with this contrast between China and Italy in the minds of many policymakers led to the conclusion that we have to throw out our old pandemic plan, which was basically something like the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, focus protection, don't panic society. Um, throw <laughs> all of that out and instead adopt a lockdown because it worked for China. I've interviewed people who have suggested that that image from Wuhan of the person dying on the street might not have been real in the sense of they believe that this was part of a propaganda campaign. Now, from whom? From which actor? Because I have a, a problem as well with the way in which if we're supposed to be living in democracies, you there, me here, why was the reaction sort of copy paste, copy paste? Oh, it's so much easier. I mean, it's so much easier, right? So like you have this like uncertain situation, very, very difficult situation involving uh, complicated scientific issues. You have politicians who don't know much about science um, and they have to make decisions that are going to make or break their careers because everyone's looking at them to make like, you know, these monumental decisions about do I lock down? What do I do about this pandemic? Um, and it's so much easier Julian, to just say, well, look, uh, 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 Boris is locking down, so I'm going to lock down. That kind of policy contagion happens in the context of this kind of uncertainty. So much because if it goes wrong for all of us together, no one politician is going to be held responsible. I'm just doing what the what the science told me to do, right? It's what Tony Fauci told me to do. Um, it's not my fault that it didn't work. Um, whereas if you stick your neck out and say, well. You know, this doesn't evidence doesn't make sense. It's hurting the poor. It, it's not really. It doesn't seem to be stopping the spread of the disease. The disease is spreading anyways. I'm going to open the schools, like Governor DeSantis in Florida did. Mm -hmm. um, you get killed by the press. Yeah, absolutely murdered by them. I mean, for politicians, it's just much easier to go along. That's something I saw as well. You saw this almost beatification of the leader of New Zealand, and she was speaking constantly and still is about zero COVID. And I have a question about this because when Martin came on the show, he suggested that if the disease were allowed to just pass through the population, obviously some people will die, but that was going to be the case anyways. But it could be the case that the disease weakens. 
Now we're seeing the latest variant is nothing compared to the Delta variant. Is this virus becoming weaker or could it now ricochet and become stronger again? I mean, it, there's no iron law mm -hmm. that it has to become weaker. Um, I do think that Omicron is less deadly, for instance, and it's certainly different in terms of the symptoms it produces. For instance, it's much less likely to produce the loss of sense of smell that the previous variants um, give. Uh, so there's no iron law about that. But what the iron law, there is an iron law, and that's, and, and that's I think, why it looks like it's so much weaker. We now have a population that is in large part either COVID recovered and therefore thereby have protection against infection, like severe infection, or they've had the vaccines and thereby have protection against severe infection. Um, so you have a very, I think, especially the, 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 the immunity provided by COVID recovery is really important because that seems to be much more effective than even the vaccine-mediated immunity. Mm -hmm. And we have a population that's no longer immune-naive in that sense. In 2020, the entire population more or less was immune-naive, especially the West. Uh, so you have this like um, uh, a very, very different situation than we had in 2020. Even if the virus is equally deadly as it was in 2020, it's in some inherent or intrinsic way, it's meeting a population that's better, better able to manage it because of for immunological reasons. Right. So if I believe I might have had it in January of 2020, all of us were very sick. I never get sick. Now, if I had had it, does this mean, again, I know you can't necessarily answer this definitively, but could it mean that my body would be better protected even now, two and a half years later? Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it again. It's like other coronaviruses, you get you get it repeatedly throughout your life. Uh, the, the, the recovery doesn't provide permanent um, protection against reinfection, especially if there's a, a variant that, that escapes immune, uh, immunity the way the Omicron does. But what it does mean is that the next time you get it, it's likely to be less severe. It's less likely to produce um, severe disease, I should say less likely to produce hospitalizations, less likely to kill you than the first time you got it. So is this now an endemic? And is it time yeah. that governments let go of all of these crazy rules? Because one of the things that my son suffers from now is the obligation to wear a mask. He's six years old. It's done his head oh, in. God. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, they, we, we put masks on toddlers. I mean, I don't have no idea what public health people are thinking, thinking that somehow masking a toddler could possibly be effective in stopping the spread of the disease. Like toddlers don't wear masks very well, many of them. And um, it, as you say, imposes costs on them, harm, harms them, as, again, many of them. Um, so I, I don't understand that. Uh, but as far as directly answering your question, the answer is yes, it's long past time. It's long past time to, to, uh, to tell people um, the good news, like we are actually in a place where we don't have to have these restrictions at all anymore. They, I don't believe they serve much of a purpose before, but they certainly serve no, pur no purpose at all now. It's time to let go of the panic, the fear mongering. It's time to let go of these restrictions. It's time to tell the world that there's more to life than just prevention of a single infectious disease. Let's not organize exercise around that. No, if only the WHO would have put its efforts towards malaria in this way. You know, like this is what kills me is there are diseases that are killing people in poor countries that gets no airtime. The problem for the WHO is that it has really lost its credibility during the pandemic. 
it's acted on behalf of rich nations. Um, it's made advice that's actually harmed poor nations pretty sharply. Um, and uh, it, you know, I, it, it's, it, it, you can see this with the monkeypox, right? It declares this emergency over monkeypox. And most countries are not jumping, jumping to, to do, do something about it. Um, the, the, the problem is like the WHO really needs to go back to what it stands, like it's, it's, it's dedicated to, to a holistic vision of health. Meaning, uh, health is not simply the avoidance of disease, but uh, but 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 uh, more, a more comprehensive idea of of uh, human flourishing, right? Uh, psychological, uh, physical, uh, social flourishing, economic flourishing, even. Um, and that idea that drove that was at the center of the mission of WHO to, to promote that, it's it's lost its way around that, and instead has adopted um uh, uh stances that have that that you know sort of prioritized uh, prevention of very small number of diseases while at the same time exacerbating the the consequences of other diseases you mentioned malaria you know malaria prevention efforts actually were uh, was stopped in 2020 malaria spread more as a consequence of the lockdowns in poor countries uh, same thing with vaccination programs um, uh, for infants in poor countries. I mean, I think the WHO really needs to return to what its mission really is. It also needs to apologize for what it did during the last two and a half years. It, it fomented panic. It basically winked and not, nodded and said, we really ought to lock down, uh, even while trying to pretend like they weren't, saying that it redefined even herd immunity, what herd immunity was, because it, did, it wanted to push against uh, ideas like the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, it really needs to get reformed pretty fundamentally. I do want a new WHO, or at least a reestablished one that's that's much better than the current one. Well, there should be an organization that's at least more transparent, and that there should be a representation of dissenting voices allowed, allowed and represented, forced to be there as well, because yeah. this became a real monopoly of opinion. If social media was a barometer for how yours and other voices were met, the way in which you were treated. I mean, you guys were accused of being in bed with the Koch brothers. I mean, it is insane, the stuff that was thrown at you all. It's, I mean, the problem is like, they didn't really have substantive arguments. And of course I've taken zero money for any of my work during the pandemic, not $1 for in our area, not $1 in, um, even for, I've, done, I've been an expert witness in almost a hundred anti-lockdown, anti-mandate cases. Um, and I've taken zero dollars for all of that, nothing for my op-eds, nothing for my writing, and certainly nothing from the Koch brothers. I've never taken any money from the Koch brothers at all. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, these kinds of like, um, kinds of attacks happen when there really isn't a counter-argument. The idea is to uh, delegitimize the opposition so that you don't have to argue on substance. Um, you know, after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, sort of four days after we wrote it, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, wrote an email to Tony Fauci uh, uh, calling me, Martin Kudorf, and Sunetra Gupta fringe epidemiologists. Um, you know, she, Sunetra at Oxford University, I think she's the best epidemiologist in the world, and it's not close. Um, Martin Kudorf is, is among the very best biostatisticians in the world, best epidemiologists in the world. Um, in, at Harvard University, I'm, I'm, and I'm at Stanford, uh, they, they uh, called us fringe epidemiologists. He called us fringe epidemiologists, and then he um, asked Tony Fauci to produce a devastating published takedown 
to which Tony Saatchi then responded a, 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 a little later with a Wired magazine article. I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I wanted to let the virus rip through society, you know, why I wanted to kill people, in effect. Uh, it, was, it was really disgusting. Um, and uh, the, the, um, uh, when, when, especially since what we're calling for was, was focused protection of the old and the vulnerable. Right. I mean that that was the, and and lifting the harms of lockdown on poor on on the poor the the young young children on the working class. Um, so I think uh, I think the um, to to me it, it essentially what exposes is, is that the fact that governments and the scientific bureaucracy uses its control of over the narrative in the media to delegitimize opposition, as opposed to what you normally would think they would want to do is to understand what the real range of ideas in the scientific community are about uh, difficult problems, and then um, make decisions on, on that much more informed basis. Instead, they wanted to, they meaning like the scientific bureaucracy, including Tony Fauci, wanted to maintain an illusion of, con of consensus about what to do about the, the, about, about the, uh, the epidemic that didn't exist. You know, tens of thousands of doctors and scientists signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Instead of saying, oh, maybe we're doing the wrong strategy, uh, the powers that be, like including Tony Fauci, viewed this as a threat to their authority and then used really illegitimate means to silence it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And a healthy democracy should embrace dissenting voices, especially <laughs> you weren't like the overnight Ukraine-Russian experts on Twitter. <laughs> you were all a group. No, but it's insane. You know, I read one article that said, well, one of the, the people who signed it, like it had some hokey name. Okay, so you, you get that on open petitions and letters where someone will come up and write George Washington or whatever. But that was a very dishonest article, in effect, because it was a great way to derail what the declaration was stating and what many yeah. scientists were stating. How do we turn the ship around though? Because this is the greater problem. I mean, more and more people are opening their eyes or the scales are falling off their eyes as the expression goes, but we still have a lot of people who will push back and governments that will not want to admit they got it wrong because when they admit they got that wrong, from there will be the fallout to forcing the young to get vaccines, to having fired and or let go hundreds of thousands of people and or to the economic and well the economic disenfranchisement that has gone on severe and the mental health and physical health deteriorations as a result of the lockdowns i don't know if you've read about the sudden death syndrome is this a rebranding of young sportsmen who've gotten the vaccine i mean i'm not saying this is but one who might thinking that way would go there because we're seeing this explosion of sudden death. Those stats from Australia are pretty devastating in the sense of the vaccine should have been used for the elderly End of they should never have been foisted upon people. People should not have had to make a choice between getting something injected to their body or being able to eat. And that's what's gone on here. It's it's totalitarian. And when I spoke to Topher Field the other day, he said, I think people should go to jail for this, and I can't disagree with him. So I don't, I, I, I don't know about you. First, let me mention uh, address this, the 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 rise in deaths, uh, excess deaths in 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 younger populations in your twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. That's real. I mean, that's a, that has definitely happened. You're seeing this excess mortality. Um, the the cause of it is is still unclear. 
Like you mentioned vaccines as a possible cause. I mean, I suppose it's possible. Uh, I mean, I don't, I can't exclude it at the point, um, but you could also point to the extended effects of lockdowns on them. Like the, in the United States, there's this enormous rise in um, deaths from substance abuse. Um, and it's younger people. Now, why is there this, now, there was, of course, there was substance abuse before in the United States, um, but with fentanyl and the opioid crisis, um, but uh, it's gotten much worse. Uh, you, you, it, if it correlates with depression, it correlates with hopelessness, right? Isolation. Um, I, I don't think that those are unrelated. I, I, so I think, I think it, a lot, some of these deaths could be due to essentially a long, long lockdown. Right, if you if you will, um, I, I don't know exactly. No one's done a study that I can that I can um, that I can cite to you because that, that I've been seeing a study that that carefully decomposes all the sources of these deaths. But the deaths are there and they're real. Um, and trying to understand what is causing them is an absolutely vital public health um, public health uh, priority. As far as like what do we do next, I, I'm not a big fan of jail and all that. I, I think a lot of that basically puts people off from an honest evaluation evaluation of what went wrong. I think that's that that absolutely has to come is an honest evaluation. Uh, in medicine, um, when a patient dies, sometimes what happens is that uh, the doctors that are managing the patient will get together in a conference called a morbidity and mortality conference, an MM conference. And they will the, they will honestly discuss what went wrong, what decisions were happened. The, the, the idea isn't to point fingers, but the idea is to like come up with conclusions about what should have been done differently so that the next time they do it differently. Uh, I'm afraid what will need to happen is that we'll need a new generation of public health leaders before that can happen. Because it, it's really clear that many of the public health leaders that made these enormous mistakes are doubling down on, on trying to say that they're right. I mean, I saw a video from Tony Fauci saying the only problem is we didn't lock down hard enough as if he didn't see what's happened in Shanghai. Um, uh, so I, I just, uh, I don't have a ton of trust in the current generation of, of public health leaders, but I do think that uh, that the new generation of public health leaders that, that takes over after this one, and I don't think it's going to take that much longer, a few years, uh, will look at this and say, and draw the right lessons. Because um, you just, you can't look at the data and come away thinking that what the public health leaders of this generation did was a success. They clearly need a new way of thinking about things because they went badly astray at the crucial moment when their expertise should have been definitive in doing good for the world, but in fact, it was definitive in doing exactly the opposite. I feel strongly about uncovering what happened and having a serious investigation on every country because I feel like there were lies that were used, they were created and then used against us to make people fearful, but also to segregate society. When I speak of jail, I'm a very, no one should go to jail for nonviolent crimes kind of person. I don't think thieves should be in jail, not any sort of thief, not even Bernie Madoff. I do think, of course, theft can cause serious violence to people in terms of losing their life savings, etc. But I feel that this was an incredible violence to all of us. You know, Not the, the inability to leave our house and walk our dog. Well, actually, in Italy, if you had a dog, you had more freedom than if you didn't. <laughs> because there was a certain point when those were the people allowed outside. Uh, but I feel like the leaders who said, follow the science, and knew damn well that the science did not indicate this, that ignored your voices, your three voices that created a document that was signed on by tens of thousands of specialists, even GPs, 
but people who know what would have happened because you don't have to be a magician to have figured it out. Whenever there's a crisis of this sort, it's always going to be the developing world. It's going to be the poor in your country, but hey, they don't matter because I'm not poor. That was the <laughs> attitude we got. That's what we got. The people who are like lockdown, baby lockdown, these so-called leftists, they were ordering for Uber and using their Uber driver, who in places like London and Berlin, nine times out of 10, actually 99 times out of 100, will be foreigners. And they will be their proxies for goodness. So they can run around with their little photo saying, I locked down, I got back. And they are the ones that can do purity politics on the backs of immigrants who are barely surviving. I just have a real issue with this kind of violence that was brought to our doorstep. The fact that my son is afraid of people still, like the mask thing. He's five weeks now out of school. And if this government plans to bring the mask back, I either have to move country again or homeschool him. That's... Neither of which I want to do. Like, this is insane. The yeah. mental health effects, in fact, when we're not talking about suicide, when we're not talking about drug overdose, I agree with you. I think a lot of the excess deaths are likely linked to that. I don't know about the vaccine. I don't even want to make conjecture because I would like to see evidence. But I worry that we are overlooking the decades of mental health illness that will come from this. Decades. Because I lost my mind. My children, like, it was really hard to be in this when you were in a house that you thought, oh, we'll be in for a few, like that was where we were. And who knows where anyone had that pause button pushed because a lot of people had that pause button pushed and they had no saving. A lot of people, when that pause button happened for lockdown, they had no anything. They were on the job market. Like no one thought about anyone who wasn't affluent. Those people that made those decisions made a decision for a person who has a 401k plan. And that's that. And so the arrogance of what happened, maybe they should just do a symbolic night in prison, but I <laughs> want these people. No, but I'm really I'm, angry. I'm, I'm angry. Your passion. I, I, you know, I, I, like people ask me why I don't get more angry. I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond angry. I, I don't know how to express it uh, other, other ways than I, than I have. But, you know, but like say, take someone like Tony Fauci. For him... To go down in history as made this enormous blunder is worse than prison. Like for him, you know, he, you know, he's the kind of person that's like he wants to be remembered like Jonas Salk, um, and uh, he's not going to be remembered as Jonas Salk. That that kind of historical legacy is is for many of the the top uh, scientific bureaucrats basically the worst kind of. Uh, punishment that they can imagine. Or we can pitch an idea to Netflix, reality TV. We take Fauci. We take all the, even what's her name? Arden from New Zealand. We take all these guys, throw them on an island. It's going to be a great reality TV show. <laughs> we put them in the island. We show them the island, all the beautiful places that they're going to spend the next year in. And we show them to their flats, then we lock them in it. <laughs> and we're like, have fun. <laughs> Sorry, that's my idea. <laughs> Got it. I don't think I'd watch this. That sounds a horrible TV. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm not a I'm not a sadist, but <laughs> lockdown. No, but it's what's interesting also about this, aside from the fact that, as I said at the beginning, I could not 
get stories past the pitch stage with left of center publications is that still today, left of some center publications, and I include independent media, I include a lot of media that's like, we're fighting back, we're Marxists, we're socialists, we're for the people. No, you're not for the people. I'm not going to name names here, but you editors know who you are because they would not take a paper that investigated the mental health fallout in the summer of 2020 or the effects to children in the spring of 2020 or the fall of 2020. And this is what's gone on. I mean, what we're seeing is not only a collapse of left and right, but we're seeing that our democracy has no beacon of light to shine upon the politicians because they're in the same bed. And so I'm really hoping that people continue to focus on looking at media across the spectrum, read as much as they can, read from the left and the right, or whatever is now the left and the right, because it's indistinguishable in certain areas, or rather the right is walking the left's old talk. And uh, I call it political strangers on a train. Mm. I think that's what's happened here. When I see Fox News and Tucker Carlson specifically talk about the working class, and they're saying the words like economy. What the left hears when they hear economy are capitalists. They hear Bill Gates. They hear, you know, the biggest billionaires on the planet. But what economics means is survival. Right. This is what the left got wrong. Yeah, that's just and that's the thing. I, I have a PhD in economics. When I hear economy, I think of someone living on two dollars a day in uh, Bangladesh that can barely feed their families. I think of the migrant worker living uh, wor working in Mumbai who buys a coconut store of coconuts so he can sell it on the street. And then with the money, he buys coconuts for the next day to sell and, and whatever's left over, he can spend on food, right? That's that's what I hear when I hear economy. And when, the, when I hear economic disaster, I think about what happens to them, right? And, and what's, what, what's happened to them is, is really is a crime. I mean, it's inc incredible that we gave zero thought to the most poor and vulnerable people in the world when we adopted this policy. Yes, and I remember years ago when the U.S. Embassy in Kenya was bombed. A good friend of mine said to me, you know, my mother pointed out something that wasn't mentioned in the news. It's not just that the U.S. Embassy was bombed, but there was no mention made of the hundreds of people affected by this, meaning of the hundreds of people who worked in and around the embassy and the hundreds of people, those hundreds of people supported in some cases by the excessive salaries in Kenya for them to have earned from the U.S. Embassy or for being the official courier service for the U.S. Embassy, etc. And no one thinks about that. And this is what a lot of people on the internet will call white people problems because we don't, in the West, people tend not to see this. Yet I grew up in a heritage, as you did, and many Americans as well, where we were raised with the idea of class consciousness and we're raised with the idea that poverty exists and it exists because of the series of mechanisms of histories etc but no one was thinking about this on this alleged left the very abcs of marxism were right there in front of their eyes and they did not see it and how can you have a, a magazine that runs story after story about 
developing world, the global south. This is what you see in some of these places where I pitch my stories. And they cannot recognize the poverty that would have been amassed that you and Martin, and I did not speak to Dr. Gupta, but I'm sure she was even there from what you're saying about her politics. How could you not see that? I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like I said, I think uh, there's some people on the left who were who did see that and spoke up. I mean, you're, you're one of them. Um, Sinatra is one of them. Um, many, many people I now have deep admiration for because you were speaking up against your clan. I, well, I, I, you know, I, I also spoke up against my clan um, pu pu in public health and in economics. Um, I don't know. I think I, 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 I think uh, it's too, too many people, right? It's too many people, too many of whom really do are people of goodwill. They just, I think a lot of it was panic and fear and scared. I mean, they were scared. We just have to like find some way to like uh, allow them to, to be wrong without, without entirely demonizing them um, and bring them back in the fold. Well, I'll take back my prison sentence then. I won't, I won't enforce that. No, I just, I can tell you that there were moments when, you know, I was there thinking, am I losing my mind or I cannot read anymore? Because nothing made sense. In that moment when you started to see that nothing made sense, just before I interviewed you uh, a month or two before, I was just, what on earth has gone on here? This is really not adding up. And that's where we need an accountability. Uh, so the WHO was a problem. Fauci nominated as the Grand Poobah was a problem. It was amazing to see how much he was used in, in Europe as well. Yeah. He became the go-to person for Europe. Like, how do we get to, you said it earlier, I'm going to go to that term you said, um, the policy contagion. Yeah. The policy contagion is a huge problem that I would never have thought would exist, but it did. Yeah. Well, you had basically the, the same small group of people. It was like concentrated, very concentrated, um, advising uh, po po yeah, political types everywhere on the same same thing. It's it's the concentration of of uh, a power within uh, the scientific community and public health community that allowed them to, to to paint this illusion of of consensus that didn't exist, and then. In among the political class, they just didn't have the capacity, most of them, to assess correctly whether what they were hearing was true or false. And so they went with the, the thing that was less risky for them, which was to the, the, which was to lock down. Because then if even if it didn't work, they could just say, oh, we tried everything we could. Except that there was also this idea that they were going to head for some countries were going to head for zero COVID, which is still being pushed in certain countries to this moment. It became really worrying to me where zero COVID became the ideal until these very same countries, the ones that pushed for zero COVID were often the ones making vaccine mandates. So they tried to replace yeah. one policy with another thinking, oh, they won't notice. So now we don't have to worry about zero COVID because we have X percentage. We knew from the beginning that these vaccines were never going to be able to offer herd immunity. So the leaders themselves were speaking out of both sides of their mouths. Yeah, I mean, th they thought it would. I mean, they guessed it would, right? December 2020, they looked at the results of the trial, which it saw that 95% prevent prevention against symptomatic infection. And they, they guessed, they just thought, well, if it stops in symptomatic infection, why wouldn't it also stop infection? That reasoning was wrong. Uh, you actually still got transmission. 
Uh, and they should, the, the problem wasn't that their hope, the problem was that they designed all these policies that, that destroyed their credibility uh, on the basis of that hope and, and then doubled down on them for a full year. As you said earlier, like people losing jobs, people losing uh, their, their ability to like, uh, and, and you know, there, 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 are, there are vaccine injured people who honestly were injured because of the vaccine. They're essentially gaslit around this. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a colossal error. And uh, the folks that, that committed it really do need to apologize, come clean and apologize. Thank you.